The information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Blue Crew Medicine. Today, we're going to do back to basics of pediatric DKA. Uh, So today, we've got a couple different people joining us today, Uh, a couple first-timers. We've got Stephen Ray, who's one of our Peds Transport RNs, Uh, originally came to us from the PICU. Welcome, Stephen. Uh, we got Blake Jones, who is a longtime Peds nurse, ER, ICU, been around the world a couple times, uh, also joins us on transport. Um, he'll tell you he's just waiting until retirement, but he's really here to teach us all a couple of things. And then uh, Nathan Freeman's joining us again, one of our Peds EM fellows, um, did our MSC episode with us before. Glad to have you back, bud. Appreciate it. And I'm Will Appleby, one of the, uh, the clinical air clinical educator for air care and uh, one of the CCPs. So today, let's get right down to it. We're going to talk about pediatric DKA. So our definition for DKA is defined as the presence of all the following within a patient with diabetes. Um, this is the consensus statement they came up with from 2018. So it's hyperglycemia, which is a blood glucose greater than 200 milligrams per deciliter, uh, metabolic acidosis with a venous pH less than 7.3, and, or a plasma bicarb of less than 15 milliequivalents per liter, and ketosis, which is determined by ketones in the blood or the urine. Um, you can do a BOHB if you want, although most small facilities we're talking about don't have that capability, and for us it even takes a minute. So don't really worry about that. Now, DKA often gets confused with HHS. Um, so HHS is a hyper hyperglycemic emergency distinguished from DKA, and the differences, we're just going to go ahead and knock this out, were marked hyperglycemia with a gl- glucose greater than 600, minimal acidosis, so a venous pH of greater than 7.25 or an arterial pH of greater than 7.3, and a serum bicarb greater than 15, um, and absent to mild ketosis, and typically they have a marked elevation in serum osmolality, um, which is greater than 320. So, guys, welcome. When you think about DKA and you start, especially in kids, what are some things some kid walks through the door and says, hey, I'm a di- diabetic. What do, you, what do you immediately say, hey, they may be in DKA? Something y'all look at. Usually, if they've had any GI symptoms at all, any abdominal pain with or without vomiting, um, if it looks like they're a little tachypneic or they're breathing a little fast, kind of taking sign breaths, that kind of clues me in on, I probably need to be looking a little bit deeper into this. Yeah, I think from um, from being a triage nurse, you know, when they come in and they sit down and they say, hey, I'm a diabetic, you know, I look at a couple things. What's their mentation? I also look at, you know, what's their heart rate? Any kid who's who's in any kind of stress is obviously tachycardic. And a lot of people can actually smell the ketones on the breath. Same. Um, also the heart rate is always a good indicator. A lot of these kids in DKA are very dehydrated. Um, one of the uh, keywords I like to pick up a lot on that the parents or the patient um, say, yeah, he's been drinking a ton and peeing a ton. Uh, That's a big red flag to me that this kid has a good chance of being in DKA. I'm talking about respirations. Everybody's familiar with Coos Mall or um, super rapid breathing. Keep that in mind. Later on, we'll talk a little bit more critical care stuff. But some people you can pick it out. Some people you can't. For for me, I can smell ketones, but some people, I mean, 
you said earlier, Blake, you can't smell them, or you can smell them from a mile away. Um, but Nathan, you never. So it's all, everybody's a little bit different. The biggest thing for me is obviously mental status. So figure out if I get a kid that's limp, totally limp coming to me, he could be any number of things. Um, but if I've got a kid that's talking, locking, every, everything's normal and they're coming to me and they're breathing a little bit fast. Okay. This is mild decay. I'm not too worried about them, but there anybody with decreased mental status and they're a diabetic immediately. Hey, this could be a problem. Um, something you mentioned a lot, Stephen, you did a really good job about what put them in DKA. So a lot of it's based off of history, like anything else, were they with somebody different? Um, were, were they at their grandparents for the weekend? Not putting, trying to put blame on anybody, but what, what threw them into DKA? Or are they, they have something else going on? They've got, the flu is pretty common right now. It's going around pretty big. Did that do it? Um, anything else y'all see? Adolescent. Are they compliant, non-compliant? Yeah. And don't always rely on them to tell you that or not. Uh, and sometimes even, especially like younger kids, when they're not quite adolescent yet, outgrowing doses. It may be that they are compliant, but they're rapidly growing and the dose isn't keeping up with the body weight. Um, abscesses, for some reason, is another big one. We get a lot of kids with like, you know, gluteal abscesses and stuff. So anytime you have a kid DKA that um, they say they're compliant, all this kind of stuff, just look them over skin to skin. I don't know exactly why, but they're, Seems to be a lot of like abscess induced DKA. Um, again, it's, DKA can be the that's the problem we identify first, but always remember, hey, there may be something that caused the DKA. Um, it's not always that wonderful ice cream cake they got. It could be just something they didn't know about. Um, it does happen on rare occasions. Somebody will walk in with a notebook and it has their entire glucose written out and what their dose was and everything all a nice like Excel spreadsheet. But I feel like that's pretty rare. Um, so when you when you're identifying DK, one of the first things we all do in a hospital, okay, is if you're on the street on a paramedic truck or even a basic, you can take a blood sugar. You get a blood sugar reading of high, doesn't always mean DK. Everybody has a different level of normal. Um, a lot of diabetics, some people run their normal blood sugars, 800. That's where they live. They, they can't get it down their A1C, especially in adults. They can't get it down no matter what they do. Um, kids, it's usually a little bit lower. Um, so if you get something that's like three or four, 500, think, Hey, maybe DKA. That being said, it could be both, right? It could be DKA and HHS. Um, have y'all seen that a lot? Yeah. Yeah. We, we see a few, we, I think we just had one last week actually where, sugar was like seven, 800, you kind of get this mixed picture where, um, they are low acidotic. So treat them as DK, but then they also have that degree of HHS where they may need a little more fluid than you would typically feel comfortable with in a normal DK kid. Um, something we all do, especially every small hospital has a pretty much once you get access, everybody does a CMP, right? So first thing is first step in DK is figuring out their gap. So looking for their bicarb, um, there's no reason to necessarily art stick these kids. Um, a lot of, that's a big misconception. A lot of us have, or have a, Hey, they have to have a blood gas and it has to be arterial. Venus works great. Um, yeah, all the guidelines by every endocrinologist in the peds world and critical care is all venous gas so that you can avoid art sticking a kid when they're fighting you. But identifying their gap. So I always remember it's positive and minus negative. So think about ions. Everybody remembers chemistry from a while back. So, uh, Sodium, potassium are positive, and chloride and bicarb are negative. So typically most the the street version uh, most people do is the sodium minus 
chloride plus bicarb. It's a street version. For those of us out there, the normal anion gap is 12 plus or minus 2, somewhere in there. Anything greater than that, it's a problem. We need to correct it. So we're talking about, when we talk about DKA, gaps are something we trend, right? Something we trend pretty often. Um, how often do y'all try to measure a gap? Or what's y'all's for that? Typically do every four hours. Yeah, we'll do gap and bicarb every four hours. You know, and in uh, mm-hmm. transport, you know, we'll look and see when did they have their chemistries drawn. If it's been over two hours, we're always just going to redo it on our ISTAT. Um, and again, even if they have a large gap and they have a lack of a significant t- uh, ketosis or like a really high lactate, think HHS, right? So they can have a gap and still be in HHS. Don't say, hey, that's automatically DKA. So we brought up venic gases. Let's talk about how you categorize uh, DKA for mild, moderate, severe. So what are, what are some tricks y'all use? Usually mine is um, like every 0.2 below. Like your 7.4 is what everyone's learned is normal. So if you're like 0.2 below that, you're mild. 0.2 below that one, you're moderate, and then 0.2 below that, severe. So it's kind of an easier way to think about it. So like 7.4, normal, 7.2, mild. Um, once you start getting below 7.0, you're severe. How do y'all use bicarb in that equation? Um, usually in rules of five, so like 10 to 15 is is a mild, like 5 to 10, moderate, and then less than 5, severe but it won't necessarily always correlate with your pH. Um, I personally, I tend to lean more towards like pH as your severity and then your bicarb just kind of gives you that baseline of um, what you're going to expect management wise down the road. So um, that's why if I'm out there in a community hospital or transport, it's like I have to choose one lab because I can only get one CC of blood for some reason. Uh, gas, a gas um, where you can calculate your bicarb off of it is perfect that's what i would want more than anything is to know the ph but now we kind of categorize them down so mild again 7.2 moderate seven seven, three, seven, yeah some yeah, seven one seven you know, one seven somewhere in there uh, i think the references i've always used is of course you know venus less than seven three is mild less than seven two is moderate less than seven one is going to be severe yeah that's that's the reference i've always seen so let's talk about we talk about kind of identifying these kids. Most of the time it's by presentation. Again, we're looking for anything else that causes DK. Most of the time they're diabetic and they're going to tell you, or somebody can tell you, Hey, they're diabetic or they have something going on. Um, occasionally we do see these new onset kids. Um, we see it a lot more frequently here because we're the peds hospital for the state. But, um, when you get a new onset kid, is there something you may do different than you would were a chronic kid that said, Hey, I'm a diabetic. Yeah, um, at least from my standpoint, new onset kids actually have a higher risk of having, you know, bad outcomes, either developing cerebral edema or showing up to your hospital in cerebral edema. So I tend to be a little more gentle with them when it comes to the fluid and um, insulin management that we'll get into. I tend to um, start a little lower, a little slower on them so that you're not pre- uh, precipitating something bad. So on the same note, you know, you worry about the younger they are, and the DKA presentation, the higher risk for morbidity and mortality. I think there's a there's some study out there. It's less than three. It's like a first time DKA, fifteen to twenty percent mortality rate. 
um, or incidents of morbidity or mortality from the, uh, from the event itself. Um, so let's get down to management. So something all we talked about it, we kind of mentioned it, dehydration fluid. So what are y'all's as far as trigger fools? Every, we talk about the physiology of DKA. I always think of it. Every diabetic is dehydrated pretty much. Okay. Um, sometimes you may have that rare heart kid or something like that, but for the most part, they're all dehydrated in some shape or form, especially in DKA. What are y'all's trigger pulls and how much as far as fluid management? What do y'all look for? Conservative approach, you know, temper kilo, reevaluate. Um, anybody hypotensive, then you're in a different situation. You're in resuscitation mode at that point. Yeah, I would agree. Um, there's a lot of, I say newer, they've been in the last 15, 20 years looking at fluids in DK because the big terrifying thing is, oh, you're going to flood them with fluids and cause cerebral edema. Um, didn't really pan out. So if you have like a new onset, I would do exactly like Blake said. I would do 10 per kg. Be very gentle with them. Um, but if it's a known kid, you can go up to 20 per kg. I wouldn't give them any more than a liter. Um because your whole point of rehydrating is they're dry. You want to increase their circulation so that the insulin you give them is actually going to work for you instead of you, you know, throw it against the wall. Right. So we talk about what type of fluid. So there's a couple of different mentalities. Again, ambulance, you've got usually three different things. You've got dextrose, LR, and then normal saline. So what do y'all use for your initial bolus or dehydration management? We're using saline, but you know we're starting to look more at plasma light. Yeah, there was um, there was actually two different studies I read recently that was published in the last two years, looking at like normal saline versus LR, and then normal saline versus plasma light. Realistically, there's no difference between any of the three. So whatever you've got, if it's LR, if it's normal saline, you just rehydrate them. There was no differences in their outcome. So whatever you got, replete them. Good deal. Um, something else to talk about you got to fix the dehydration. You also want to maintain them. So something we talked about a couple of previous episodes as well is interstitial losses. So if you've got a kid that's in moderate DKA, that's breathing 30, 40, 50, 60 times a minute, and they're trying to get all those ketones out and acidosis and correct everything, they're constantly using fluid when they do that. Um, so don't forget maintenance. So all, all I'm getting at. Don't don't forget the maintenance fluid behind it. So make sure you give them that bolus on it, but then they got to have something to maintain it. Um, even though they may be on insulin infusion or antibiotics or whatever else, that may not necessarily be enough to maintain to combat those interstitial losses. I'd start a maintenance and a half and be done with it because they're they'll tolerate it. Insulin. So there are different different kinds of insulin out there in the world. As far as insulin, how do y'all do it? So. Continuous, just continuous infusion is all you need. Um, I know kids are different than adults, and you know everyone has that saying: kids aren't little adults. Um, if you try sub Q in them, they're dry. It's not going to absorb. It's not going to help them. And then by the time you fluid resuscitate them and get them to us, or they've been sitting in your ER four, five, six hours, now you just created a ticking time bomb where it's going to hit them big, cause a big rapid drop. Uh, your IV bolus, a big rapid drop. You're going to increase your risk of cerebral edema. You're going to um, cause a lot of fluid shifts and have a lot of issues. Just a simple infusion is all you need. Just keep it simple. I think it's the biggest thing. Is that if they're hypoperfused in any way, shape, or form, and you give them sub-Q or even IV bolus, you you don't know when that insulin's going to hit versus if you hit, put them on that continuous infusion, you control it a lot better. It's a lot tighter to control. 
from you know from our team standpoint, we we talk about you know going to get these kids who who've gotten a big bolus and now their sugars dropped significantly in the first hour to two hours. Um, you know, from our standpoint, it's a whole lot easier to manage a DK with a high glucose rather than a DK with a low glucose. Yeah, and this is uh, not thinking about DK and the treatment. Uh, it's not something that's going to be fixed in a couple hours, um, especially in your severe DKs. Uh, they're going to be on an insulin infusion, um, maybe 24, 48 hours um, in the ICU before they're corrected. So it's a long, slow approach. It didn't happen overnight. It's not going to be fixed overnight. It's a common misconception. Everybody likes to fix a number. I, I'm trying to get off a soapbox, but everybody gets worried about numbers these days and labs and all these things, and especially with DK, everybody gets oh, I want to concentrate on this number or that number, some of the ones we'll talk about, but it didn't happen overnight. It's not going to be fixed overnight. Don't try to just fix the number. Exactly. And your biggest risk of having complications is within that first, like, two to four hours of treatment. So if you're in a position where you're like, I'm going to give them fluid, but I don't feel comfortable with insulin, I'd rather have someone else. It is perfectly fine if you just hydrate them. Um, because if you think about it, you're, everyone thinks insulin is dropping your blood sugar. That's not your ultimate goal in DKA. It's eventually you're going to decrease it down yes but your goal is to treat the acidosis with your insulin so um again if you're ever uncomfortable with it you know fluids and then let us come get them so we're talking about shifting too fast or shifting too slow so what are some glucose targets y'all use is there anything are there specific numbers you want to get them to before you start worrying about other things we're going to look at um the initial glucose where did they start when they hit the door um and we want to try to drop it around 100 uh, milligrams per deciliter per hour. Uh, what we don't want to do is drop it too fast. Um, and there's also another number you, you asked about is that 300 number. Once we hit 300, we know we're going to drop and we've got to add some dextrose to some, to some solutions. Um, everybody gets worried about how to make D10 infusions or D5 infusions. Is there any kind of tricks of the trade y'all use to make that happen? The street method is, you know, if you got a bag of D, D5 normal, just add two amps of uh, glucose to it, and you get approximately D10, almost normal saline. There's some other formulas out there where you can use straight saline and add dextrose, but, you know, the simple version, just add two amps to a bag of D5 normal. Okay, guys, I wanted to stop right here and just clarify something for just a second. Since there's a lot of fluid shortages going around, um, real quick, some quick, easy math on how to make D10. So if you've got a thousand bag of D5, so a thousand cc's or one liter, what you can do is withdraw hundred cc's of that D5 and then simply add two amps of D50. So two full syringes of premixed D50. Now, if you've got a 250 D5 and you want to make it into D10, what you'll do is take again, 10% of that D5. So 25 cc's of that D5, withdraw it, and then you're going to add half an amp, so 25 cc's of D50. So that's for a 250 D5 bag. Now, if all you have on your truck or all you have in your ER that night or that day is normal saline, how do you make D10? Um, simply put, take a 250 bag of normal saline, pretty much everybody has access to these, withdraw 50 cc's of normal saline, and simply add an entire amp of D50, so all 50 cc's of D50, and that'll make you D10. Um, if you want to make D5, so for some reason you need some D5 as well, 
Uh, same process with 250 normal saline's. Withdraw this time for D5. Out of the 250 bag of normal saline, withdraw 25 cc's and input 25 cc's of D50. And that'll give you a D5 bag. Um, again, D10 is a little bit easier. And the reason why we like D10 is because it's a little more concentrated. So if you're using D5, uh, maybe all you have, you don't have a whole lot of, if you're on an ambulance, for example, and you're trying to, you run out of D10 or whatever, keep in mind, if you're giving them D5, you're giving them more volume while you're at it. So something, Stephen, you may can speak to this from the ICU world, especially you worried about total volume intake. Um, keep in mind, if you have to change that fluid up, you're getting a whole lot more volume than you may normally have gotten. Um, so is there something you can use to kind of figure that out? Is there some... Are you looking at urine output or anything like that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Urine output, for sure. Making sure the kidneys are still working. Kidneys are still working. Uh, yeah, healthy renal function is something you definitely want in these patients. So now we're doing we're training glucose. We're talking about 300. When you get to 300, we're going to add some add something, add something to it. Um, talking about trending other labs. So sodium and hyponatremia. Are you, is that something y'all worry about? Not typically, because you're, if you think back to, you know, medical school, if, you know, one of the providers, they teach you all these fancy formulas for correcting your, your sodium, all kind of stuff. Ain't no one going to remember that. Just remember that, like, the higher your blood sugar, the lower your sodium is going to look on your BMP, but it's not a true low sodium. So, I just, just leave it be. And you should see it come up, and that's actually a normal response. If your sodium is not coming up as your glucose is dropping, that's when you have a problem. Um, but you won't see that for hours on end. So uh, I wouldn't worry about sodium usually. A lot of people, that the good basis I always went to was it increases for every decrease of 100 in your sugar, it should go up by 1.6. Should. Um, that's the one I keep in the back of my head. So I think, all right, to your point, you mentioned Blake earlier, talking about dropping about 100 an hour. If I see it increasing, everything's about trends. So uh, in a transport world, Especially, I'm sitting there looking at, you know, the outside hospital labs, and I may have drawn my own labs when I initially get there, and then we're doing them in transport. I try to make it a nice little Excel spreadsheet almost on a piece of paper and, like, look at them. All right, hey, make sure everything's going the same. Again, we're talking about something that's not going to be fixed overnight. So looking at trends, they're like, hey, does my insulin dosing right? Is it dropping too fast? To that point, can we cut an insulin infusion back? Absolutely. Uh, we typically start at 0.1 units per kg per hour. Um, and if this, their glucose is dropping too fast, you can always cut it in half, 0.05 units per kg per hour. Um, and just bring down the glucose slow. Yeah, because what they need is that insulin. And so if you are in a position where you don't have D10 and you're only running D5, cut it down to that 0.05. If you're dropping real fast, cut it down to 0.05. Um, or increase your sugar in your fluids, something to keep that insulin going. Right. We're just kind of close that gap, keep everything together, but don't want to do it too fast. It's always better to do it slower, slow it down, and speed it up. Um, we're talking about treating numbers, but looking at patients as well. So before we get back on numbers, when you look at patient assessment and you get that initial presentation, whether it's to you or to the outside hospital or to the family or whatever it is, Training that's important, so watching them constantly. So looking for their how hard they are breathing, how fast they're breathing. So they may be breathing 60 times a minute, now they're down to 40. Always look at it two ways. They could be getting better or getting worse. Um, is there something y'all look for to figure out, hey, they may be
Yeah, absolutely. I'd echo that. Um, again, prime example, last week we were transporting a, a DK patient, and you see them go from, like, being to kitnick, tacky to the 150s, and, like, just won't hold up in their eyes, won't really talk to you. And in the, what, two-hour ride we had, she, by the end, was sitting up talking to us and breathing 15 times a minute, a heart rate of 110 instead of 140. Like, you mm-hmm. can, heart rate and mentation would probably be the big two things. Like Blake said, that's the biggest things I look at. So continuing to talk about fluids a little bit, something a little bit, I won't say controversial, but something that kind of gets people confused maybe is potassium replacement. So when do y'all think about potassium replacement in these DKAs? Uh, so, you know, what we have different protocols of when we add potassium to the fluids, but understanding why we do that. We know as we're correcting acidosis, the potassium is going to go from extracellular back to intracellular. So you're going to drop your potassium pretty quick as you start correcting. So our magic number is we're going to add potassium to the fluids once that K is less than about 5. Yeah, and I can't emphasize that enough because it's different than what our adult colleagues do with adult DK and that they're looking for um, a certain potassium to, like, stop insulin. They do potassium no matter what. Um, but in kids because their body water content is so much different than adults. It's if your K is less than five, add about 40 mil equivalents per liter into your maintenance and a half fluids. Um, once you're in that area, you're fine. Um, but if you do start seeing Ks like low, you know, less than three, um, you probably need to start giving a little boluses of it. And whether it be if they're tolerating PO somehow, you know, PO doses. Um, but just make sure if you are potassium, like, replacing with low boluses like that to check that every hour. So, um, As far as dosing of it, say we got the I don't know, 20 kilo kid, okay, and pretty moderate DKA. K when presentation, when you get to them, hey, you run an ISTAT lab, K is 4.6. What's, what's the dose of K you're going to give as far as KCM? To me, if if you've got a low potassium once, especially in a transport world, I'm going to check it again at least once in transport. But I would say if you're in a smaller LER, at least once an hour. Just to make just to see where you're, hey, we're maintaining, we're not decreasing too fast. We don't go from that 4.6 we talked about earlier to 3.6. That's that's where it starts getting a little spooky. Something else, bicarb. Yeah. Uh, a lot of literature out there. Yeah, that's a that's a little soapbox I could get on. But the the simple way to remember it is just don't do it unless you're coding them. Um, and I, mean, I think you need to say that again. Yeah, basically, if you're doing compressions on a kid, that's when you get bicarb. Outside of that, you don't ever give it because I know in some of the adult literature, there's like get bicarb with their pH is less than six point nine. Um, that did not pan out in kids, and there's actually multiple studies showing that given bicarb, just the simple act of giving one amp of bicarb or any dose of it, actually increases your rate of cerebral edema and kills kids. Um, more so than any other treatment factor you can do. You can give them a ton of fluids, you can give them no insulin, you can give them a little too much insulin, but given sodium bicarb in a DK, pediatric patient is one of the single most dangerous things you can do. 
So don't do it. I've, I know I've been to places or seen patients where Bicar was given a lot, and it usually is pretty negative. I mean, just exactly what you're saying. Um, I know there's some some studies out there, and there's some different critical care transport teams that are using bicarb instead of 3% saline or mannitol. I would urge folks against that, especially in PSDKA. Um, I know it's out there, so I wanted to say address it. So we're talking about cerebral edema, okay? For y'all, how do you think of, hey, this kid may have cerebral edema. It's the biggest complication you can have with DKA, biggest neurologic insult. To me, it's one of the biggest things you can kill a kid, honestly, or make a kid's day not so great. Um, how does it happen? What And what are some indication clues for y'all to say, hey, look, this kid has cerebral edema, I need to fix it. Yeah, all goes back to uh, mental status. Um, you walk in, uh, the patient can open their eyes, can't talk to you, um, barely responding to any painful stimuli, um, you know, ch- doing all that. They're not responding. See, huge indication they have cerebral edema, mm-hmm. uh, and it needs to be reversed quick. Uh, so, um, you mentioned that that decreased responsiveness, that um, uh, altered mental status. You know, if they're still kuzmalin, you know. We just don't want to go and say, hey, we're ready to intubate. This is the one kid that they are doing better ventilating for you than you have a ventilator that can ventilate for them. Um, We won't intubate that kid unless they almost stop breathing. As long as they're kuzmolin, they're compensating. They're doing the best they can. That's almost up there with bicarb is intubating a DKA patient um, as far as worsening their status. yeah, mental status is the the biggest thing. Once their GCS gets like less than thirteen, you start considering um, giving mannitol or hypertonic. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, you can do either or. There's been studies trying to figure out which one's better than the other, and the consensus is if they're about to herniate, just give them one. Yeah. Um, and you don't have to wait on a CT. If they're clinically in front yeah. of you, look like cerebral edema, you can just treat it. You know, from a transport standpoint, it's it's managing a patient after they'd been given, especially a decay, after they'd been given mannitol, and then they dump all that urine from the osmotic diuresis, it's really hard to manage their, their fluid and electrolyte balance at that point. Um, we, you know, our team will typically pull out the bag of hypertonic saline first. Um, if they're still looking bad, you have no choice to add mannitol to it. Yeah, if you've got a kid that you think it, like you've diagnosed DK and you think you're about to take their airway, try hypertonic first. You'll be amazed how quickly they pop right back up, and you're like, okay, this is this is great. I think anybody that's for me, my we're already using three percent, and we're only talking three percent. We're not using seven and a half or twenty three and all that jazz, especially in kids. As far as three percent goes with me, if they're unless they're volume overloaded for some reason or I pretty much stick with hypertonic. And my reason why is, again, diabetics are typically dehydrated. So give them volume replacement on top of it, kind of help them out. Again, like you're saying, you're not chasing your tail all the way around with somebody who just dumps a whole bunch of urine. Now they're, they were volume down before, we tanked them back up, and I just gave them mantol. Again, if they're about to herniate, give them something. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you've got hypertonic handy, it may be a better option. Yeah. As far as hypertonic dosing, everybody's still the four to six cc's per kilo. Uh, mannitol is still a gram per kilo. It's pretty much accepted wide. Um, 
to make the math easy, I usually go with five. Uh, yeah, easy <laughs> Just, five. Let's make yeah. it easier in the heart. We don't want to think and, about you it. You know, you can give another dose. Yeah, yeah, always can. So you talking about seeing an improvement. How long does it usually take for y'all when you're in when you've seen in your practice for it to minutes? Minutes. Mm-hmm. The last one I gave hypertonic to two minutes. Like they, we hadn't even finished the bolus yet, and she sat up and started talking to us. Like it's a drastic, quick improvement from what I've seen. Um, so it's not always like ICP where you see it from TBIs and right. stuff where it may take 20, 30 or longer right. to take effect. It's, it's generally pretty quick. Uh, you mentioned mental status, talking about mental status earlier. Keep in mind where you are. If it's 3 a.m. and you're dealing with a three-year-old, I've got one at home. If I woke him up at 3 a.m., one, he'd be upset. But two, he's going to be groggy a little bit out of it. Keep in mind if they've been up all day and people have been poking and prodding them or, you know, family member, I had this case once where – Kid was a known diabetic at home. I think I think they were a six year old, and family had been keeping him up, thinking it was like a old school concussion syndrome. Like I have to keep him awake. I don't want him going to sleep. Well, they've been up all day. They never got a nap, and this and the other. It's okay to be a little bit sleepy. It's when you can't arouse them or can't do something else that's the problem, right? As far as intubating these kids, we talked about we don't want to do it. We never want to do it if we if we can help it. Is there a point where your trigger said, "Hey, look, I need to do this"? If they like they're herniated yeah they basically that's it it's herniated sepsis they're like something else involved the the one thing i that i've learned is if you do intubate a dk someone that is kuzmoling know what your gas was beforehand and generally you're going to hyperventilate them and have their pco2 down like 20 like it's got you don't want a normal gas and then uh instead of checking it every so often it's basically 30 minutes like check your gas every 30 to 60 minutes and make adjustments keep that co2 in the 20s because it's going to change rapidly as you're fixing their metabolic acidosis so you have to you have to be on top of them a lot a lot more than most of your kids you've intubated i think for me it's one of those you know living in the transport world if they're at where they're going to be if they're at pzr emc or at somewhere it has a pick you or an icu that can manage the kid hold off as long as you can even if they're on they need some they have some underlying lung pathology they've aspirated they have pneumonia now you know BiPAP CPAP something else or high flow maybe a better option for something if they do have something underlying some of the patients that before you've intubated for transport even though I hate that terminology mm-hmm. um, but for patient safety maybe a better option try to avoid it I've taken patients I mean I typically flying around helicopters a lot, but I've taken the patient by ground. Hey, look, we're not going to the helicopter. We're going to go to an ambulance because it's safer for the kid. If I can avoid intubating the kid, that may be the better option. Um, and then for me, again, it, they got to be pretty much apneic or pushing apneic. Yeah. Um, but if they've got that GCS, I don't feel like, I feel like they're going to aspirate it. They puked before or something like that. And I can't control it. As you mentioned, the ventilator management's a whole different ball game. Throw out everything you know as far as, oh, we're going to be 12, 505. If, if you know me, that's my worst thing in the world. But um, look at them before you, before you intubate them. See if they're breathing 60 times a minute. Cool. Set them to whatever you they were doing. Mm-hmm. Try to match it because that's the only way you're going to keep them out from um, getting worse. Yep. Seen that before, too. Uh, oh, well, we wanted to intubate them for transport, and then we show up, and they're breathing, you know, 12, 505, and I'm like, what? And their pH went from, they're, I won't say almost corrected, but 7.1, and now they're 6-something. Six six yeah. 
and it happens quick. It's it's one of those things. If you're going on an event, it happens pretty quick. There's actually a calculation for every change in PCO2. I think your pH drops by 0.08, and you can do the math and say you got a perfusing rhythm, but you might not have a perfusing rhythm when you take that airway. Yeah. Uh, one of the points I like to always keep in the back of my head when I pick up one of these kids is make sure they don't have an insulin pump on. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. Walked in I've several two, places two this year, I think. Uh, I and, you're, and they have an insulin infusion running, and they're also connected to their insulin pump. Uh, so they're, you know, who knows how much insulin they've gotten at this point. Uh, but always look over, make sure their pump's off, um, and just hand it to the parent. Or just say, hey, look, you know, has this could be a pump malfunction. You never know. It could be something if they got in DK in the first place, or they've been. Uh, some of you can do on your phone, like hit, it, you know, bolus me five units or whatever. But good point. Always make sure that thing's off. <laughs> don't don't add to your day. Make it worse. Yes, usually like whenever I'm teaching, you know, residents, new nurses, when they ask me why I'm doing what I do in the ER, I always like a dummies summary. PSDK, while can be scary, is actually really really simple. You give them their bolus. You start them on their maintenance and a half fluids, and you start them on insulin, 0.05 to 0.1 units per kg per hour. And that is all you need. You don't need bicarb. You don't need a tube. If you can just do those three things, you're golden. I think a lot of people over overcomplicate the situation more than they have to. Yeah. Um, again, if you if you're doing a multi-system disease process, you got somebody that's septic and they're diabetic, and now they're you know dealing with their own pressors because they're hypotensive and all these things. Again, but always keep in mind if you can do that with DKA, you'll fix the DKA problem. Yeah. So. Um, just the simple things. Yep. Simplify as much as you possibly can. Keep it simple. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming in today. Yeah. Thank Anytime. You. Thank you.